Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Takahiko Nakao served as president of the Asian Development Bank from 2013 to 2020. He also served for many years as chairperson of ADB's board of directors. Before joining the Asian Development Bank, Mr. Nakao was the vice minister of finance for international affairs at the Ministry of Finance of Japan. In a career spanning more than three decades, Mr. Nakao has gained extensive experience in international finance and development. He held senior positions in the Ministry of Finance in Japan, where he joined in 1978, including Director General of the International Bureau, where he fostered close ties with leading figures in the Asia-Pacific region and the G20 nations. Mr. Nakao has written several important books, including The Rise of Asia, Perspectives and Beyond, and he was the managing editor, if I can put it this way, of Asia's Journey to Prosperity, Policy, Market, and Technology over 50 years. But I want to talk specifically today about the rise of Asia, Perspectives and Beyond, which is Mr. Nakao's memoir, which I really enjoyed very much and has recently come out. So Mr. Nakao, I'm very grateful that you would be with me today on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. Thank you very much, uh, Daniel. Uh, I'm very happy to join this meeting and it's a great honor to me and pleasure. So I knew him when I was president of ADB and I visited Washington and you hosted uh, several seminars for ADB and Asian things. So I'm so impressed by your continued interest in emerging uh, markets uh, because you have a connection to Latin America, but also to Asia. And I'm so grateful to your initiative. So that is my first statement. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your career. Our podcast listeners are made up of an audience with a very broad and basic understanding and interest in global affairs. We have an audience of about at least a thousand listeners per episode. However, I'm sure that we're going to get a lot more listeners when we talk to you. So we would love to hear a little bit more about your career. Tell us about how did you get started at the Ministry of Finance in the first place? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, After I graduated from the economics department of uh, University of Tokyo, I joined uh, the Ministry of Finance of Japan in 1978. And it was a time after the collapse of the uh, Bretton Woods system, which was a fixed exchange rate uh, between uh, major countries and dollar was uh, supported by the gold. And uh, the dollar can be converted to uh, the gold. Uh, if foreign authorities request the uh, US to change the holding of dollar to the gold, and it was a Breton system, and it was a fixed exchange rate system. But it collapsed in 1973, and when I joined it, it was a kind of uh, the time uh, international uh, currency system was discussed, and uh, it was almost decided the floating system came in. So it was a time of turmoil, and there were two oil crisis in 1970s. It was uh, such a turmoil period and I joined the Ministry of Finance and uh, I was in the division to uh, see the Japanese uh, balance of payments and uh, currency issues. So it was interesting. You were president 
of the Asian Development Bank when the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank was stood up. What was that like? And how did you engage with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank? It was in 2013 when I uh, became uh, president of ADB, and it was April 2013. And when I visited, I started uh, visiting uh, member countries, including China. And uh, the first visit as a president of ADB was August uh, 2013. Before that, I visited uh, China many times, especially to discuss uh, the financial uh, cooperation between Japan and China. China was a G20 member, and I was a G20 member deputy and also G7 deputy, a finance deputy, uh, as a vice uh, minister of finance uh, between 2011 to 2013. So I had visited um, China several times or many times, but the first one was in August 2013. And at that moment, already uh, Mr. Jing, who became... Uh, the president of AIIB later discussed uh, this issue with me in summer 2013. And he was uh, the vice president of Asian Development Bank uh, under the uh, presidency of uh, Mr. Kroda. So he was uh, <laughs> kind of uh, the alumni of ADB and uh, China uh, office of ADB invited him as uh, for or the lunch with the uh, alumni of ADB when I visited there. So it was a time when I knew such idea. But at that moment, AIIB was not named that way. And I thought it would be a kind of small fund to include China and several ASEAN countries. So I didn't uh, expect and I, I think uh, they even didn't expect that this becomes such a big uh, international organization. <laughs> so after that became a larger and larger initiative, uh, especially because uh, President Xi uh, 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 recognized it and uh, they thought uh, this is interesting idea to make uh, China's presence uh, bigger in the international community. And together with the Belt and Road Initiative, it became a very important initiative for uh, China as uh, in the international arena. And there were more and more countries starting their intention to join. And uh, the critical moment was uh, in 2015. The United Kingdom said that they would uh, join uh, the AIIB. And then European countries uh, followed. And uh, Australia, Canada, and Korea, those countries also followed. So the critical moment was uh, 2015, April. And toward the end of uh, 2015, the AIIB was established. So during that time, I had a lot of discussion with Mr. Jing, and uh, they wanted to know how ADB was operated. Of course, as a vice president of ADB, uh, Mr. Jing knew how it was managed, but uh, we discussed uh, what should be a new institution. Although the United States and Japan uh, didn't join and uh, was not uh, negotiating uh, the, those issues of uh, joining AIB or not, but as a president of ADB, I was in position to discuss how ADB can cooperate with the AIIB or how ADB regards AIIB. Is it a rival or is it uh, the uh, partner or whatever? Why did Japan and the United States not join the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank because neither of them have joined the AIIB. Yeah, uh, it's not my role uh, to uh, discuss uh, uh, the uh, national positions of uh, joining or not uh, 
uh, AIIB, but I suspect, because I had uh, some discussion with the authorities of uh, Japan and the United States, but uh, there were several concerns uh, that this uh, AIIB was a unilateral initiative of China to establish a new bank. In the case of ADB, Asian Development Bank or the World Bank, there was so much discussion between uh, potential member countries, what kind of uh, institution they will, would make. And uh, in case of uh, ADB, Asian Development Bank, which was established in 1966, there was a huge discussions about uh, the treaties and what is the purpose and uh, the operations. And also the headquarter was decided to be in Manila, although uh, Japan was the uh, most enthusiastic advocators of uh, ADB, but uh, Japan couldn't be successful to invite uh, headquarters to Tokyo, and it became Manila. So it showed that uh, ADB was not Japan's initiative. It was an initiative by Asian countries, including Sri Lanka, Thailand, and so on. And the United States was also a very important uh, member who would be uh, the founding member. So the US and Japan have the uh, same shares of uh, voting and same uh, shares of contributions even today. But anyway, what I want to say was the China's initiative AIB was very unilateral. They say that we will accept this one and if uh, you join, you can join. So that kind of initiative. But in case of other international institutions, it was uh, more a multilateral action. So it was not uh, as if uh, China decided to establish this one, and if your friends, please come in. So that is a kind of uh, a concern by Japan and the United States. Mr. Nakao, I won't, I won't hold you to that. I know you can't speak for the either government, but when I read your memoir, you went through the arguments pro joining the AIIB and against join the AIB. And the argument that I thought was the one that you thought was the strongest and the one that I agree with was the strongest is this issue of that the Bretton Woods institutions when they were started required several years of negotiations among the founding shareholders to bring everybody along so they all felt a sense of buy-in and ownership. Again, you're speculating, you're not speaking for the Japanese government, you're not speaking for the American government, is that maybe some may have felt as if China had pre-decided and cooked and pre-designed the AIIB and then invited people to join. That was an attractive offer for some, but for some, perhaps it was not as attractive. And that's what kept Japan and the United States out. Yes, I think so. So uh, there was a discussion in Japan and others that uh, we must support it, AIIB, and we must uh, join the uh, AIB as a members uh, so that the AIB can be operated uh, more like international institutions with the uh, very neutral uh, uh, political ideas and also more care about the environmental issues and also the uh, uh, social issues like uh, workers and so on. So there was an idea to join it. And also there were ideas that by joining AIB, there can be more business related to AIB to those uh, member countries. And also some people said uh, that it is important to have a friendship with China through AIB. But the arguments against uh, joining AIB in Japan or in the United States is that, and I'm inclined to support uh, this latter idea of uh, not joining, uh, but uh, of course I'm not, I didn't say this because uh, I was a president of Asian Development Bank. This is my unilateral actions. And uh, another is uh, that it's better to make a comment about the operations of AIB from outside 
if we are inside, <laughs> it's more difficult to say, frankly, this is not a good idea. Like a minister, if a, the minister of the United Kingdom or Japan became a member of a minister cabinet, it's more difficult to tell uh, the uh, uh, very strong advice to prime minister, even if uh, they are rivals. So uh, sometimes it's more effective to say something from outside. And that uh, another point is that if uh, Japan or the United States uh, were to be member of uh, AIIB, they must pay a lot of uh, money to uh, make initial contributions of uh, stocks, uh, like uh, uh, $1 billion, $2 billion. I don't see it being politically feasible, Mr. Nakao. I'm here in Washington. I cannot see any American government going to the American people via the U.S. Congress and saying we want a billion dollars of taxpayer dollars to be a share, a small minority shareholder in a Chinese-led development bank is political. I won't call it political suicide, but it's a political, let me describe it as a political non-starter in the United States. I think to your point, Mr. Nakao, they are disconnected to the politics of this. So like we, they can say it's a great idea and we should join for all the reasons that you outline in your book about life standards or having a voice at the table or an opportunity to good development. That's all true. But then you have to go and explain to my parents who are taxpayers, well, we need some of your taxes to put money into a Chinese-led development institution where we're the minority shareholder, we need a billion dollars. I can't think of a single elected official in the United States that will allocate a billion dollars of American taxpayer dollars for that. Like, there's, it's a non-starter. That's right. So there were several strong voices that uh, the Japan should join AIIB. But when I attended by the invitations of uh, the Liberal Democratic Party ruling party of Japan, I discussed the history of ADB. I didn't uh, comment on the AIIB. I felt uh, that the politicians um, in that meeting, at least, were more negative to joining AIIB. So uh, the, the same uh, kind of idea, like just you said, uh, why can we mobilize uh, taxpayers' resources to be a member of AIIB as a minor shareholder, which doesn't have a say? If uh, there is uh, something wrong happens to uh, financial or whatever, reputation or whatever, if uh, the US and Japan are members of AIIB, we are also responsible to be accountable to that kind of a, the criticism. Sh should we bear such a burden of uh, explaining uh, to be accountable about AIB? It's better to make a comment uh, from outside and also in case of uh, Japan, uh, there is a Japan International Cooperation Agency, and uh, we have ADB, uh, the US and Japan yeah. are the biggest uh, shareholders AB. We can cooperate with the AIIB from outside, and I think it's much more efficient and uh, uh, wiser way of <laughs> cooperation with the AIB. I share your view, and so I, I found your arguments in your memoir about this very compelling. So let me remind people, we're talking to Mr. Takahiko Nakao, the former president of the Asian Development Bank, and he has written a recent book called The Rise of Asia, Perspectives and Beyond, which is a, a memoir and it should be read in conjunction with the book that he was, in essence, the managing editor of, which was Asia's Journey to Prosperity, Policy, Markets, and Technology. But I also think it's a book, Mr. Nakao's memoir should be read in conjunction also with Mr. Watanabe, the first president of the Asian Development Bank's memoir, which was written in the in the I think in the late seventies, 
but you can also get in English from time to time. So I think it's a very interesting book, Mr. Nakao's uh, memoirs, which were published by the Asian Development Bank, and you can get it online, and I encourage you to do it. And so we've been talking about the AIIB, and but you had to manage many shareholders. You had 50 shareholders. The People's Republic of China is a member of the Asian Development Bank. Japan's a men- member of the Asian Development Bank. The United States is a member of the Asian Development Bank. Australia is a member of the Asian Development Bank. India is. Taipei, China is a member of the Asian Development Bank and has been a member of the Asian Development Bank since 1966. There have been sort of growing tensions during your time from 2013 to 2020 between mainland China and the United States. So, you know, maybe AIIB was sort of one manifestation of that, but could you talk a little bit about how did you, as a neutral civil servant, how did you manage those tensions? I will just note one thing. One of the things I was most impressed about, Mr. Nakao, is you made 16 trips to mainland China. Like, you meant more to mainland China than anywhere else because I think it was a way of you signaling respect to mainland China and that you wanted to have open communications with them. So I suspect some of it was about being respectful, being a reliable partner, and listening. You talk about some of your dialogue with your Chinese counterparts. It's very, very interesting. Can I mention uh, the three books uh, I was engaged again? Uh, so the first one is uh, Banking of Asia, which was published in 2017. It, it was uh, 50 years uh, history of uh, ADB since it was established in 2016. And it, uh, uh, I mean, 1966, I'm sorry. And uh, this was uh, written by Mr. Macaulay, who is uh, Australian and from Australian National University, and he was also executive director of ADB. But it's a really good book, and uh, I and uh, staff uh, uh, supported it. Uh, Daniel uh, mentioned uh, the memorial, Mr. Watanabe, who is a f- first president of ADB, and uh, there was a lot of quotations of his remark, such as ADB should be the kind of a home doctor to be uh, quick to come to country to support, and uh, the uh, ADB staff should be too uh, proud about their work. Uh, they must first listen to what the others are saying. I mean, the uh, National uh, Civil Service uh, are talking about because uh, they know country better. So the attitude of uh, the ADB staff is uh, superior or more, uh, I mean, uh, uh, knowledgeable about uh, the theories and so on. We shouldn't take such an attitude. That is a very interesting point of Mr. Watanabe, and it was quoted to this book. The second book we published uh, was uh, the uh, history of Asian uh, development itself, uh, the state versus market. And I thought uh, the market is more important to make uh, Asia more developed and developing. And uh, the, of course, uh, the government is important to support uh, the institutions building uh, to make uh, environment of uh, the uh, private sector's activities more favorable. And also the leadership and vision of leaders were important, but it was not really state-guided. Of course, state was important in any countries, uh, even in the United States in 19th century or 20th century. The government was very important uh, role to play. Uh, but uh, the Asians uh, uh, growth after the reform and the opening of 1978 of China and the Indian uh, uh, more private-led uh, growth after 1990s, 
And uh, of course, uh, Japan and uh, the Korea, uh, Taipei, China, Hong Kong, and uh, Singapore, those countries uh, all grew by the private sector. And uh, they had to import, so they had to export to get uh, the technologies and uh, uh, resources, I mean, uh, primary resources. But uh, it was not really export-oriented. It was not uh, import substitution, but it was uh, more outward-oriented, open to others, import and export. So this book uh, covered many interesting stories about infrastructure and uh, countries' uh, development and the technology's role. The Asia's growth is not just based on the cheap labor, and of course it is uh, becoming more and important to use uh, more technologies imported from abroad, but also developed by themselves. So this covers gender issues, climate changes, and uh, uh, very wide uh, uh, topics with episodes. So this uh, Asia's journey to prosperity, it's uh, the history book of uh, Asia. I think, Mr. Nakao, Asia's journey to prosperity, I think is one of your most important legacies as president of the Asian Development Bank. We did a seminar at CSIS on Asia's journey to prosperity about 18 months ago. And then I was invited to participate in a seminar, a virtual seminar with a Chinese think tank. So we had a, a very prominent Chinese scholar, Justin Lin. You presented the, your memoirs, but also talked about Asia's journey of prosperity. We had uh, a voice from Southeast Asia, and then we also had me as a commentator. So there were three commentators. So I think you're right. Asia's journey of prosperity, I think is a book will be read 25 years from now. And it's a really, really, really important book. So I was so strongly engaged in this book and after the publishing ADB history itself or Asian Development history, there was a discussion among staff that we can have a kind of twin book of the history about Asian development. I agreed to that idea completely and I was so enthusiastic to publish this and it was published in January 2020 just before by departures, but it is uh, 15 uh, chapters uh, like uh, uh, the role of markets and state and the dynamics of structural transformation, agriculture, modernization, technological progress, education, health and the demographic change. This is really important for Asia because education is a basis for any development. And in Bangladesh, for instance, in 1960, there was almost no education for women, 0.2 year on average, but today it is like uh, nine years or eight years. So uh, this kind of uh, the development was also discussed and uh, the role of finance, infrastructure development and trade and uh, direct investment, foreign direct investment was also very important source of uh, the uh, growth uh, momentum and stable macroeconomic uh, uh, policies. Uh, compared to Latin America, Asia was more successful in uh, pursuing uh, sound uh, macroeconomic policies, especially after Asian financial crisis of uh, 1990s. And then uh, uh, poverty reductions and income distributions. Uh, so it is becoming a larger uh, kind of a gap in income and wealth even in Asian countries. In developing Asian countries, uh, the poverty has been reduced and workers get more wages, but uh, the rich people become even richer because of their access to technologies, uh, foreign educations, and the asset they have like uh, real estate. 
and the gender development. Uh, in Asia also, women's uh, power is becoming larger, women's participation in labor, and also their education and health uh, were so improved, although there are remaining issues. And then climate change and environment. I'm very happy that uh, Daniel read this through and uh, <laughs> appreciated it. Uh, I spent maybe 800 hours or so with the staff to discuss uh, detail of this uh, book and also structures in the beginning in my room. And I thought they, uh, I took too much time for me as a president of operating a bank. But I thought it's very important to uh, make this kind of book from Asian perspective. ADB is in Manila and many staff are uh, Asians, although there are, of course, Americans and Europeans. But often Asia is discussed by the American scholars, uh, including uh, Daniel. <laughs> but I hoped that we can also make uh, uh, the contributions because they were very good uh, doctor staff, PhD staff at the ADB, who are from uh, Malaysia, India, Indonesia, Korea, Japan, of course, and uh, the United States. So it's very interesting to discuss these issues uh, uh, from Asian perspective. I could learn a lot from this work, <laughs> and that is a second the book and third book is my memoir and I thought it's important to keep a record uh, of uh, my work in ADB and some uh, uh, years at, when I was the Vice Minister of Finance because often uh, those are forgotten easily. I myself forget it but I thought uh, working for ADB was uh, so interesting and as uh, yeah, I'll go to that uh, discussions uh, now but uh, visiting China was interesting. There are so many things happening and if I don't record uh, it's very difficult to uh, detect in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years. So some people might uh, this is informative uh, including uh, some uh, strategic issues and also policies about uh, merging uh, two accounts of concessional loans and ordinary loans and my uh, the encounters with the uh, member countries. I think uh, this can be interesting book to some readers. Mr. Nakao, I've read all the books on uh, that you've mentioned. It was one of my COVID projects was reading Asia's Journey Prosperity as well as Banking on Asia. And then when I learned that your new memoir had come out, I guess it's only come out this year, uh, I read it on a plane and I was anxious to, a part of it, to prepare for the seminar. We had done a seminar on the Asia's Journey Prosperity 18 months ago, but I thought it was particularly important to have you just talk about why did you write that book and how you thought about progress in Asia. I think it's very, you have a very important perspective. So the message of Asia's Journey Prosperity is, is that there were strong, Asia had strong institutions with capital, with markets. That's the bumper sticker, right? That's the big takeaway from Asia's Journey Prosperity. Is that right? Yes. So especially when we uh, are discussing the China's uh, uh, rise as a power, some people might think uh, that uh, the state-guided uh, more authoritarian uh, regime can be uh, better to uh, uh, grow. And of course, uh, we need a strong government and sometimes uh, the government support to the industry is worked, but sometimes it doesn't work. So it's very uh, bad idea to uh, emphasize uh, the state role too much. In many countries, it failed. That's one of your criticisms of outside observers of Asia, that they often overemphasize the role That's of the right. state. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. 
That's right. And they overemphasize the role of the state uh, to subsidize, uh, to support industry. But the industry cannot grow just because of a support by the government and import substitution subsidy to the state-owned enterprises. In many countries, it was total failure. So the uh, China started growing when Deng Xiaoping opened uh, the economy to the investment from abroad, to uh, to out or, uh, outward oriented policies of export and import. Until then, it was very rudimental economy. So any countries exchange with other countries through trade, investment, finance, knowledge. These are the essence of uh, the uh, uh, growth. So I wanted to emphasize it, especially because there is a such idea that there can be a Beijing consensus or Asian consensus. Japan's uh, the uh, industrialization started late 19th century, but it was almost private. The government didn't really support the subsidy except uh, some pilot program like uh, textile or uh, uh, railways, but they privatized it right away <laughs> because there was no such idea to own the business or to manage business by the government. So that was one of uh, the key messages of mine. Okay, so one of the other things that I was fascinated by in your book was the issue of democracy and human rights. Are democracy and human rights Western values or universal values? So, so that's what I really want to say again. So democracy and human rights, as if uh, some Western <laughs> uh, commentators uh, talk as if they are Western values. It's not Western value, it's a human value. So any people want to have uh, human rights and also any uh, people want to have uh, their own voice. Uh, if they are taxed, they want to make a voice. So in Japan, there was a very strong democracy uh, movement in 1880 or so after the uh, new government, after the Meiji restorations uh, started uh, taxing uh, landowners based on the uh, land value. And those people's uh, gentry class started saying that we need a voice. If uh, the government is uh, taxing us and if uh, the government decides something, we must be part of it. So. They started uh, having uh, the parliament, it was more limited, but in 1925 it was uh suffrage, uh, all men could join the voting, all the women were not uh, yet uh, there. But anyway, what I want to say is uh, democracy is not by <laughs> MacArthur, it is by the Japanese people itself. And it's very natural that people want to have a voice if uh, they, they, are, uh, they are part of a nation, sovereign nation, and if they are taxed. So democracy is not a Western value per se, but uh, and also human rights. Uh, the uh, <laughs> I mean Chinese or Indians or Japanese had uh, uh, the uh, Confucius or uh, the Buddhism, and th there are er elements of uh, human rights. We shouldn't kill animals. We shouldn't, of course, kill uh, uh, the other peoples, and we should be nice to others. So there is a, always a such element in any society. So. I'm very strong against the idea that the human rights, freedom of speeches, or free, uh, democracies are Western value. It's a human value. Do you believe that the, the arc of history bends towards democracy, Mr. Nakao? Yeah, I think so, but there is uh, some reversal these days. I mean, it, it's very clear that uh, democracy is becoming weakening, and also even in the United States, uh, there are some confusions, and it's a very partisan today. And it's not uh, trying to uh, the uh, kind of uh, have a moderate ideas of a left or wing, but it is very partisan. So democracies are not challenged, and in many countries, uh, democracy is a, a kind of a having a reversal, but I think, uh, I hope 
that this is a kind of a temporary adjustment. We cannot be hyper-globalization. We cannot be hyper-democracy hyper or uh, the, the uh, liberal ideas. We should have a certain role of a tradition, a certain role of uh, the conservative ideas, I would say. So we needed to be a moderate between them. But today, I think there are some reversal in many places, including China, including uh, in Thailand. And of course, Myanmar's case is, uh, is uh, really bad. But uh, I hope that overall, democracy should be mainstream, although we should need uh, some adjustment like uh, the good politicians, a good civil service, good media, good academicians, uh, the private sector alone cannot uh, make uh, people happy. So I visited uh, China 16 times, as I said, and I had very good discussions with them because they want to grow, they want to pay more attention to environment and climate change and gender issues and so on. Many people who are counterparts of ADU were very I mean, open-minded, and uh, they had a lot of ex international experiences. So I had a very good discussion, And but uh, China is now more developed. But, so it's very natural that uh, China can graduate from uh, borrowing from ADB. By the way, about Taiwan, Taipei, China, in ADB, it is called Taipei, China. Before 1986, it was uh, only member from China, but after People's Republic of China became member in 1986, Taipei China, as a name of Taipei China, could uh, stay there as an ADB member. And uh, it was a great uh, achievement of uh, uh, the ADB to keep uh, Taipei China as a member. And I think it sets a kind of uh, a model for APEC, for instance, that Taipei China is a separate member uh, to, to uh, People's Republic of China. So it's very interesting to be engaged with China again. and. Uh, I hope that China would pass uh, uh, the moderate policies and open trade and investment regime and uh, good uh, cooperations, friendship with the United States, Japan and other countries in the West. Mr. Nakao, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to encourage people to go out and read Mr. Nakao's book, The Rise of Age of Perspectives and Beyond, but also the book that he was the lead editor on which is Asia's Journey to Prosperity, Policy, Market, and Technology Over 50 Years. Mr. Nakao, thank you so much for being on Building the Future with Dan Rundy today. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Uh, Rundy. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 